0: I'm here to help you grow and learn as a resource room teacher. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hello there, my friend. Thank you so much for listening to episode number one. In this episode, we are going to talk about reading comprehension and laying a foundation for future episodes so that you know what comprehension is what factors impact a student's ability to comprehend, and then we're gonna talk a little bit about what good readers do. So let's first begin with a simple definition of what reading comprehension is. In my mind, we overcomplicate reading comprehension. In the past, we thought reading comprehension was being able to answer a multiple choice question. Then we moved to being able to support your answers in those multiple choice questions with evidence from the text then we thought maybe reading comprehension was being able to write or to describe or be able to tell more information later in a more written or oral form all of which i feel is overcomplicating what reading comprehension is in my mind reading comprehension is Did you get something? Did you understand the author's purpose or the author's message or the central idea? Did you grasp what the author wanted you to get out of that passage? Maybe it's something nonfiction and it's more about the environment or about animals or about a mission that someone has. Maybe it's something that is more fiction-based and it's being able to pull a theme or a lesson from a story. Either way, the author wrote that for your enjoyment or for you to learn something. Did you understand what that was? Could you read the text and follow directions? Could you read what was there and make a recipe from that? That is reading comprehension in my mind, understanding what you read. What I think, We, as teachers, or you know, everybody and their brother knows what our children should be doing, except for us teachers, apparently. And so, we have tested kids to death, and I think we've lost sight of what reading comprehension truly is. Now, of course, we would love for our kids, especially our students with disabilities, to be able to answer those multiple choice questions, to be able to cite text evidence, to be able to write a a five paragraph paper describing what they learned or what they felt the author's message was or or whatever, we would love that. But is that realistic? Keep it simple in your thoughts of what reading comprehension is. Understanding what they read. And that looks different to everybody. That looks different depending on what you're reading. It depends on what level of passage you're reading. So keep in mind, reading comprehension is much more simple than what we make it, and it's just understanding what you read. Now, here's the problem. I just made reading comprehension sound so simple. It's just understanding what you read, right? It's so easy. But we know that it's not so easy for some adults, for some of our students. There are barriers that get in the way. So what impacts reading comprehension? In my mind, there are three things. I'm sure there are more, but these are the big, big mama ones that things just fall under. These are the big things that stand in the way of students understanding what they have read. So the first barrier that impacts reading comprehension is background knowledge. And while background knowledge is something that I feel like we all know what it is, we could probably all teach it to our students, I think there are a few things that we as teachers need to know and be aware of as big, big factors in what our students know. So before I tell you everything that I've learned over the last year or so with background knowledge, I want to first back up and tell you kind of how I explained it to my students in previous years. So for me, I would always tell my students, you know, background knowledge is what you know about a topic. For example, you guys, as third graders or second graders, or whatever grade level I'm talking with, you might not know a lot about being a mom. You know a little bit, but do you know how to change a diaper or make dinner or you know, take a make a doctor's appointment and just name things that moms do. And you've seen your mom do it, so you have some background knowledge, but you haven't done it, you haven't been there, you don't know what it's like yet. So, to flip that though, I'll tell them, but guess what guys? I do not have much background knowledge in video games. I've seen my kids play them or I've heard my students talk about them but don't ask me to play them. I'm not very good at video games. So your background knowledge, even though you're only 10 years old or you're only eight years old or whatever, even though you're younger than me, you have so much more background knowledge than I do on video games. Just like I know so much more about being a mom than what you do. And that's okay, we all have different background knowledge. And so then we would transition to whatever we were talking about that week. Okay, guys, this week we're talking about sharks. Tell me, what do you know about sharks? And without background knowledge, kids don't have anywhere to put the information that they read. It doesn't fit anywhere. They're not adding to their schema of whatever topic you're talking about. So for me, that is background knowledge, but we need to consider three factors in what that background knowledge looks like and how it shows up in our students. So first, a lack of background knowledge comes a lot of times from poverty or from our ethnicity. So for poverty, I, I use this example as, we talk, as I talk with other teachers in my building sometimes. Some of our students at our school live in an apartment surrounding our school. Our school really is surrounded on nearly all sides by apartments which is government subsidized and honestly one of the reasons I love my school it's a community we are they're all the school is the heart and soul of our little area here there's a dollar store that you can walk to there's a walmart close by that you can walk to and a lot of our parents and our students they don't own cars that's how they get to and from they go to the dollar store or they go to walmart and that's just how their lives function and jokingly but also not jokingly they never leave oak street they never leave the street The all of those apartments and the store and all of that they never leave that area so that does not give them many opportunities to go bowling go ice skating go see a museum go experience a, a different climate or a different environment than what we have here in our area so while that is one factor, that's not it, though. Think of ethnicity. I don't know what it's like as a white girl from Seymour, Indiana. I don't know what it's like to live in other parts of the, of the world. I don't know what it's like to have a different skin color. I don't know what it's like to have to learn a new language. I don't know what it's like to do so many other things. Just like our students have the same barriers. So poverty and ethnicity play a big, big factor into what we're reading, what we're understanding, and what we can do. So to me, those are obvious things. We know that. We see that in our students. But there's another big, big factor that honestly, within the last year or so, was brand new to me. So, seeing psych reports for years, I've always seen a fluid reasoning score, and some students it might be high, some students it might be low, and you think, okay, fluid reasoning, reasoning and strategy, some of those things are going to be difficult for you. Okay, I get that, but there's so much more to it than that. So, in the book Building Background Knowledge, which um, is written by Robert Marzano, if you are curious, I got that from Amazon, and. With that, he explains what fluid intelligence is. So let's say, I'm gonna use my two children for an example. I take my two children to a museum. Actually, over vacation, um, we went to several museums. That's kind of our thing. That's one thing that we love to do. So we go to the museum and we all experience, my husband and I included, but we'll stick with the girls here, they experience the exact same exhibits, the exact same animals, we read the same content, we touched the same animals, we did all the same things. But someone with a higher fluid intelligence is able to remember and obtain and understand more of that museum. So let's say my other daughter has a lower fluid intelligence. Just because she was there does not mean that those experiences and that information is ingrained in her. She may have to walk through that museum four times doing the exact same things over and over and over again to have the same background knowledge that my other daughter had. So if you consider even students who aren't stuck on Oak Street, if you consider kids who do have great experiences, they have been on vacations, they have visited other areas of the world, they have had opportunities to go to field trips and, and things of that, just because you're there or you have done it does not mean that you retained that information or that you experienced that experience in the same way that everybody else did. So a lot of times we talk about, you know, hey guys, remember when we read this book? Remember when we watched this movie? Remember when, insert whatever might relate to what you're talking about? We kind of think like, hey, remember I jogged your memory and I told you that we've done this. I told you that we talked about that. So you should just remember, yeah, we did it. But that does not mean that their brains were capable of absorbing it at the same rate of of peers. So background knowledge, while duh, we knew it was important. When I read about this fluid intelligence, it was like, man, how many of my kids have I just kind of, you know, like we watch a video to set the stage or we watch a video to explain what a word means. And now I feel like, hey, you watch the video, you get it now. That's not always the case. So remember, background knowledge without that or with some of these barriers in place could really impact a child's ability to understand what they read. The second barrier is the ability to multitask. So for some of us, reading, although it is not a natural process that our brains were designed to do, it is something that we can put some of those skills together and be able to read and understand a passage. But for others, the ability to multitask is hindered in one way or another. Maybe that is really just our cognitive abilities are too low to truly be able to do all the things at one time. Maybe it's something like attention. You are very intelligent. You can do a lot of those things, but you're very distracted. Maybe it, the ability to multitask is hindered because you're spending so much time focusing on decoding or focusing on reading fluently or some of those other parts of being a good reader. So the ability to multitask is so, so important because our brains have to chunk words and phrases and sentences so that it all flows and makes sense. Our brains are trying to pull out what information is important so that we can learn and remember some of the important details. If we're talking something that is more fictional based or something that tells more of a story, maybe we're trying to think of the setting. You know, where where is this happening? What is the character or, you know, who's the main character? What is their problem? What questions do you have for the author? There are so many things that we are doing while we're reading. And for a good reader, we don't even know we're doing all those things. That's just second nature. Maybe we were taught a little of this or a little of that, but overall, good readers just do those things naturally, where for others who multitasking is difficult for them, they don't know the who, what, when, where of what you need to do while you're reading. Now, the last barrier is vocabulary which, like in many situations, I feel like is obvious, but it's often something that we skip over because we don't have time or I only have 30 minutes with my kids vocabulary. Move on. We've got to go. But if children do not understand what those words mean or what even one word means, it can throw off the entire meaning of that passage. So my example of this is I love to read books about how the brain works or psychology, things like that, but I remember in college reading a book, I couldn't even tell you what the book is at this moment, but I remember having the book out, having the dictionary open on my computer, and I would have to like read a paragraph or a section, look up what some of those words would mean, then go back and reread now that I knew what the heck those words meant, and then try to make sense of it, and then rethink it to myself or kind of resummarize to see, okay, now that I think I know what these words mean, is that what the text said? You know, what did the text tell me? Now, that's a long process. I hated that class because I spent so much time just trying to read the book and understand what was there. Our children, especially children with disabilities, are not going to do a lot of that work or they're going to need help because Reading the words in the dictionary might also be a challenge for them. Having somebody give some real life examples might be a better way for them to understand what that word means. Also, we have to consider what vocabulary they hear at home. In many situations, our students are not hearing academic vocabulary. Therefore, when they see it in a text or large words, they have literally never heard those. So we really have to take time To help our students know what those words mean. To do that, start with sharing picture cards, videos, stories. My kids on Monday, when I taught fifth grade, loved Mondays because we always had new vocabulary words. And I would always, not really even planning on it, have some type of story about my kids or my husband or my sister or whatever to kind of bring in what that word reminded me of. After sharing what the word means, the, the real definition and my interpretation with maybe a video or a story or a picture to really show that word, then have students retell that word to another student. Maybe it's their neighbor, maybe it's to you, maybe it's go home and tell mom, whatever, but have them retell it. The sooner, the better. If they could say it to a neighbor, that would be even better. Then have them look up synonyms and antonyms, or I'm not saying they have to look them up and write them down. I think a discussion is fine, but being able to think of what words mean the same and what words mean the opposite can be incredibly valuable to them. Also a non-linguistic representation, meaning they draw a picture. Not everything has to be all about words. It can be a picture of that. And again, going back kind of to my fifth graders, that was fun for them. What weird way can I draw a picture to represent this word would totally make their day. That's what fifth graders love. So how can your kids draw a picture or represent whatever that word meant so that they can remember it at a later time? Now that we've talked a little bit about the barriers, the things that make reading hard for our students, Now let's talk a little bit about what good readers do. So it's a long list. Good readers do a lot as they're reading. They're making predictions. They're making inferences. They're monitoring their comprehension. So they might read a paragraph or two and then be like, oh man, I was really distracted by whatever this student was doing, whatever this teacher was doing, whatever I was thinking about from last night. And I need to go back and reread that. They read accurately. They read rapidly. They know how the passage is organized. So is this nonfiction with some headings and the text is broken up? Are there charts? Are there diagrams? Are there tables? Is it more of a fiction with a beginning, a middle, and an end where there's a clear problem and a solution? What? How is it organized? Is it more cause and effect? What does it look like and how is that going to impact the way I read it? They make mental notes, maybe they even make physical notes. They ask questions, whether that be mentally or they jot it down or they stop and do some Googling. They're visualizing what they're reading. There is so much that goes into that and good readers do all of those things, honestly, without even thinking about it. That's just what they do. Now, to me at first, that sounded so intimidating oh man, all of these things that my children are not doing instinctively, how am I going to get them to do these things instinctively? And then I was reading the book, 10 Essential Instructional Elements for Students with Reading Difficulties. And it is by Andrew P. Johnson. And as I was reading, I, you know, I'm getting a little overwhelmed of all these things, all these things. And I remember reading this sentence, and I'm going to tell it to you in a minute and thinking like, oh, okay, I can handle that. And he says, we can improve comprehension by improving thinking skills. And so for me as a special ed teacher, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, that's going to be a long process, but that's doable. I can't assume that my kids are just one day gonna be like, bam, I'm monitoring my comprehension hey, I'm reading and making predictions. They're not gonna do that on their own, but I can teach them that. I can help them improve their comprehension by slowly and steadily teaching them how to think. And that is exactly what I wanna help you do with the upcoming episodes of this podcast. So I invite you to subscribe so that you can hear all of the upcoming episodes in the Reading Comprehension series so far i have planned um, the next six episodes which are all about reading comprehension we are going to talk about the difference between reading skills and reading strategies how to help those students who can read so fluently but don't have good comprehension skills in place to understand what they have just read even though they read it so beautifully we're going to talk about what you should be doing before reading during reading and after reading a passage or a book or a story, what you should be doing at all points of reading so that you can help them understand, as well as then how are you gonna transfer that so that everything that you're practicing on a regular basis, they begin over time to do independently. And then we're gonna wrap it all up with the things that you need to know to be a great reading teacher. So make sure that you hit subscribe so that you can stay up to date with the upcoming episodes. And I cannot wait to talk to you later. Well, my friend, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Resource Room podcast. I truly, truly love to help and support other special ed teachers. Because of that, I run a Facebook group just for us search the resource room and request to join you can also check out my website theprimarygal.com for blog posts pictures and more information until next time have a great week